Hi, I'm Kara Infante, and this is Bookish Flights. In each episode, I chat with one bookish guest as we take some time to sample and savor the pairing recommendations from their bookish flight. We hope to give you suggestions to cultivate your TBR list and nurture your leisure time through books. In today's episode, I am speaking with Kim Kolner. Kim and I have been friends for many years. I know from our conversations that nonfiction reading is her jam. Since we've been doing a lot of fiction-based book flights lately, I recruited her to be a guest on the show. So we are very lucky to have her today to discuss her nonfiction-based book flight, and it's going to be with a foodie focus. So welcome to the show, Kim. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are? Yes. um, We grew up together back in Illinois. I now live out in the mountains and um, I got into nonfiction um, from my dad, um, who's a big nonfiction reader, much more in the line of self-help and education and um, American philosophy and all of those wonderful American history things that aren't quite my thing, but always hearing about the stories um, got me interested and more about using books as a way to learn something new. I love that. Um, So that's kind of what got me into nonfiction um, and got me into this realm The specifically these books that I haven't chosen for the flight are the ones that um, I've chosen mainly because I read them and it kind of changed my perspective on certain things about food and I was getting into food for my profession. I'm a planner by trade and at my last job I was tasked to work with an agricultural conservation easement commission and um, they didn't have any funding to actually do agricultural conservation easements so we focused on local food and creating a value and a demand for farmland to stay as farmland, um, which again kind of got me into this realm. Once I dove into it, I got totally sucked in and it's kind of been my personal passion since then. And while I'm in a very different area in the nation now, um, it's not no longer a part of my job. It is definitely still one of my personal passions and I'm learning a lot about the different areas and things that are grown here, the microclimates that we have here in the mountains, all those fun things. Yeah. Can you tell me as someone that like does not know anything about it, what is an agricultural easement? I don't that's like a whole new term to me. Yes. So um, just like any other easement, it's a contract between a property owner and some beneficiary of some sort. So it can be joint, you know, people are probably familiar with like easements for the utilities that you can have your electrical line go through your property or whatever. Okay. But for agriculture, it's someone that puts a conservation easement on their property so that it has you're basically removing the development rights so that it stays in agricultural production in perpetuity. And they have the same thing for like regular open space conservation easements, but this is specifically agricultural focused. And it's a great mechanism to use for farms, um, family farms that are century farms, all of those really cool heritage things that families want to keep their farm as farmland long before after they're gone. That's super cool. 
I feel like I have heard of this. I just never knew the term was an easement. So I think I'm like, I kind of have the general idea of what you're talking about in my mind. I just didn't know the, I guess, the proper terminology to use for that. So thank you (laughs) for sharing. I'm actually specifically thinking of we went and we stayed up in northern Idaho and we stayed on, it was signed into be a homestead. It was like by Theodore Roosevelt, which was super cool. <laughs> um, and so we stayed there last summer before we moved back down to California. But that was great. And I'm assuming it's probably something similar, right? Like it's this protected part of land, mm-hmm. like you said, that can't be developed on. And exactly. it stays within the family down the line. Yeah, and it's, so. yeah, it's not even required to stay within a family or entity. It's just that the easement requires that it can't be developed. Well, Every easement's different, but in general, it means that you can't develop the site. That's super cool. And I feel like this is, we keep hearing, right, about this, like farming and agriculture and the lands being eaten up, especially being from the Midwest, right? Like, I think we, being from a farming community, like, this is something that we are familiar with. And so I love your choice of books today. Do you, and it brought a smile to my face about your dad, having known your dad, that you've got this passion from him. So that brought a huge smile to my face. So <laughs> Another quote from my dad that I think is very pertinent to this is that my dad always said that when he grows up, he wants to be a farmer, which I always thought was the weirdest thing because I'm like, you are grown up. Like he yeah. would say this for, for as long as I could remember. You know, I, I was maybe 10 and he's in his 40s. And I and when I grow up, I want to be a farmer. I'm like, but dad, you are grown up. I really just don't get it. And after getting into this and after reading these books and having this kind of become this external passion of mine, um, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I totally get it. I want to be a farmer when I grow up. And now I'm almost 40. <laughs> and yeah, I that's totally my saying now. <laughs> that is so funny. And your kids are looking at you like you have a third eye when you're yeah. saying it. Like, what? <laughs> oh, I love that. Like, here's your new, it's an easement on perpetuity that your family wants to be a farmer no matter what age. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how in your busy life do you find time to read? Um, it's few and far between. Um, my, my list of things I want to read is way longer than the things that I've actually can have time to read. Always. <laughs> um, but <laughs> thankfully, um, I am a big into audiobooks. So doing dishes and listening or folding laundry and listening is kind of the, the only time that I can get away and actually listen to some books and uh, get an hour or two in. And I typically, which is probably not the best habit, I actually let my laundry stack up so that I know I have like a chunk of time. They'd be like, okay, I'm going to go do laundry and listen to my book and I'll see you in an hour. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you can really zone out and like where normally I would like get sidetracked by other tasks. I can really stay on focus when I'm listening to an audiobook. It's like, no, just like sit here and finish it and listen to the book. Like have at it. <laughs> yep. So I totally feel you on that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've maybe shied away from nonfiction because I've typically tried to read them as hard copy books and I get very sleepy while reading them unless I put it in at the right part of my day. Like I definitely cannot read them at night. Um, But I love the idea of learning while you're reading. I think Mm -hmm. that that's it's, you know, I think through audiobooks like right, it's a way to reclaim your time so I can learn, read a book and accomplish whatever tasks. So I love that. And I'm really excited to talk about our flight today. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a quote from Marcus Aurelius, um, a ancient philosopher is it's kind of uh, more about 
what you read than just the just reading. And I, I totally don't know the entire quote, sure. but it's something about that, about the it's, it's the context of what you're reading is more important than the fact that you're just reading. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I've read books, right? And fiction books sometimes do this as well. I think that's why I'm gravitating towards historical fiction a lot because I am learning as well as having a good story told to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that makes you think about it over time. And it sounds like this is what has really like, you know, checked the box for you is like, I've, I've almost dove down the rabbit hole, right, of these food, you know, farming, agricultural books, because you're thinking about them after, right? And yes. I think that's the beauty of it. So, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as I was putting this together, if you remember like all the different text messages that I'm just like, oh, I could do this topic or this topic or this topic. Once you kind of get a topic, there's a lot of books and options that you have um, on any little piece. So reading for a couple different authors of that topic gives you a really good perspective of what the topic is and whether that's something that you're passionate about. So clearly, this is something that I really dove into as compared to some other topics, but there's still so many things to learn about. And I think um, uh, something that I kind of dawned on me while I was on youth exchange. So I was a Rotary Youth Exchange student as a gap year between high school and college. I was staying with a French family, attending a French school. So I was learning French the whole year that I was there. And in Belgium, if you're not aware, they speak both French and Dutch. And I lived in the capital where they do speak both. And I walked past a French library. And I'm just like, okay, this is so cool. It's a really nice place. And then like right across the street is a Dutch library. And it was really modern, cool architecture. I went in and I'm walking around and I'm like, I would, I could spend hours here. However, I don't read Dutch. Yes. <laughs> so this is an entire library of books that I will never have the opportunity to read. And that, you know, already just like your 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 wish list of, of books to read, um, it, it kind of puts it into perspective that there's so many things that won't ever be translated to English or authors that we won't ever be aware of or know about just because they come from a different country or speak a different language. So that was a really weird perspective to, to experience. Yeah, I think that it's something I have thought about is, like you said, like all these books that we will never experience in the English speaking language. And how, how does a book that's, let's say, written in Dutch, like, how does that get picked up? You know, like, is it the popularity? Or is it the publishing house, like, really propels that to be then translated into various languages to then be taken to other, you know, countries, which is Mm -hmm. something wild to think about. And I think only us book people do that, right? (laughs) (laughs) So and I I totally learned about Belgium through you, actually, I feel like, I mean, we had learned about it in school. I mean, mm-hmm. but like, I think in talking to you about your experiences, that's was and, you know, learning the two different languages that was all came from you. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so and you were my first friend to like study abroad. So totally, you know, opened up the door for that. I, I, I was a unique um, trailblazer as a child. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Do you ever read anything outside of nonfiction? Um, yes, um, I do like historical fiction. Okay. Um, I kind of like you said that, you know, you're still getting a story and you're still having the ability to learn something out of it. Um, I absolutely do not read romantic books or anything with love stories anymore. And I think that was, I, I was reading something shortly after I got married and I'm kind of like, 
what's the point? I found the love of my life. Yeah. Why am I reading about someone else's struggles? Like, well, it, it seems petty compared like, why, <laughs> why bother? Again, I, I already have the love of my life. So I really just kind of cross that off the list uh, of even like books to look at or interest because it just doesn't interest me anymore. Um, again, I, I have my own love story. I don't need to be yeah. reading about others. Um, we... We're reading a lot of fantasy books with the kids. Yeah. Um, my daughter's definitely a, a fantasy fiction girl in regards to her interest in unicorns, um, those types of things. We just finished um, the first Magnus Chase book, and it's the same author that wrote for Percy Jackson. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it has a um, like a Norse mythology kind of background oh, cool. to it. And my husband's family is from originally from Norway. So it's something that kind of checks the boxes in regards to not only is it fantasy, but you're teaching a little bit of like family historical folklore kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I think, I don't know if you listened to episode 11, but my friend Liliana on there, she does a YA book flight and actually the YA book flight, there's one for boys and one for girls. Of course, she's like, you could read it in both, but it might appeal more to that. Um, but in each one, she gives a fantasy book recommendation. So that would be something cool for you and your daughter to check out. You guys yeah, might like it. So mm-hmm. the one she was raving about, I think is a newer book to the fantasy category, but she was raving about it. And it even intrigued me to want to read it, even though my kids aren't there yet. Yeah. <laughs> they'll get there yes. <laughs> they grow too fast oh I'm sure like I know it's coming right everything comes so much faster than I plan in my parenting mind right but I know life is like that <laughs> <laughs> all right well why don't we get to it a little bit why don't we start with the first book we'll be sampling today yes um the first one I picked is French Women Don't Get Fat by um I'm going to try to not totally butcher the name um Marie Gulieno, I think. I don't know. Well, okay. I'll get to the spelling for you. Yeah, it'll be on the show notes. So don't worry. Marie came originally from France and she traveled to the United States and learned about the American culture. And of course, this appealed to me as she was doing this kind of as a college exchange. Um, and I did youth exchange, so we kind of op- opposite mm-hmm. experiences. Um, she gained about 20 pounds on her travels and kind of saw that more as an adjustment to, or the differences between French culture and American culture. Um, from my own experience, I gained 20 pounds when I was an exchange student. I think it's more of just a um, an exchange student thing, or maybe kind of like your freshman 15 of like, you go somewhere, it's a new experience, you want to try everything. So of course you're indulging in things a little bit more than you would in a normal day-to-day type atmosphere. So that part of it, I think is, is, at least I've debunked in my experience, but because of her gaining that weight, it's kind of opened her eyes to some of the cultural differences between how the French view food versus uh, the American culture around food. So some of the things that she um, she was addressing are kind of the, the main focuses is um, that um, it's kind of a common sense approach in, in, in my mind, but it's really kind of that everything's in moderation, um, okay. that why, while you know, the French are known for their wine, cheese, and bread, it's not like they're 
indulging on it every single day at every single meal. You know, sure. if they're going to have a glass of wine, they're going to have a piece of bread instead of sitting down and having half a loaf of bread or an entire baguette with your meal and half a bottle of wine. You know, it's, sure. it's just everything in in paired back or in moderation so she kind of talks about like if you wanted to try to lose weight to kind of do it at that smaller approach and kind of the same thing that um americans have such a diet culture that she suggests more of kind of taking that small baby step approach of yeah instead of having entire loaf of bread or baguette with your meal have just one piece of bread and scale back just a little bit at a time until your body's adjusted and you see some momentum and then pull back a little bit more and still not to like totally cut yourself off from things um because you know you have like a cheat day and kind of our culture here um that there really shouldn't be a reason to have a cheat day if you want to have that scoop of ice cream have some ice cream but don't have three scoops of ice cream, just have one small sampling and move on. Um, yeah, I've always th- thought that too, of like the restrictive diets, like, well, what happens after you add it back in? So I like the idea of this approach where you're not, you're not going to be so restrictive that like you can't have it because in reality, you're going to go back to, to probably eating it. Right. Yeah. So here I love that approach. Yeah. And then another thing she talks about is exercise, um, that the big difference between American culture and French culture is that, um, what does she refer to it as? I just put it in my notes, um, that Americans are good at sitting and spinning. So we sit all day in an office environment or we work and sit on our butt all day. And then we go to a spin class and bust our butts for an hour and then that's it. Um, that instead that, um, and this might be, you know, more kind of the atmosphere of larger cities versus rural environments and those kind of things. So I don't know if this is too much um, from a American French culture, but more environmentally, but that she would walk everywhere in France um, mm-hmm. where she lived. So she would walk to work, she'd walk to lunch, she'd walk home, she'd walk to a friend's house. So she's getting in you know, tons of steps and miles and miles of walking every day, just because it's part of her routine. And that here we've got the taxis, we've got Ubers, we've got mass transit, that there's not really a reason for us to walk. And if it's more than five to 10 minutes, we'd probably drive anyway. So kind of pulling back to that, um, again, it's probably a bit more conducive if you lived in a larger city than I do in a rural environment. But it is possible. When I first uh, moved out here to the mountains, we didn't have a vehicle for three months. And thankfully, the school, my office, and a little tiny grocery store, as well as the medical clinic, were all within like two blocks of each other. So, you know, even in a small town, there's ways that you can, can make it work where you don't have to take your car from one block to the next that you can get out and walk and kind of have the purpose of let's go for an evening stroll after dinner and those types of things. I'm having kind of this almost slightly traumatic flashback of when I've lived in bigger cities and don't drive my car everywhere and going grocery shopping and then struggling to get home because I bought too many groceries. (laughs) Well, that's another thing she talks about is to go grocery shopping more often. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that she points out is, you know, rather than trying to stretch your groceries to last two or three weeks and doing the big Costco haul and how much you can you can bulk items and those types of things is that if you go shopping more frequently, you're more likely to buy fresh fruit 
in fresh yeah. vegetables because it won't go bad because you're going to be using it right away and going knowing that you're going to go to the store again in a two or three days from now. Yeah. And I'm guessing so interestingly enough, Kim knows this, but listeners, you might not. We were living in Sicily when the pandemic started and we Italy was very restricted and, you know, we couldn't go to they were trying to minimize people going to the store And Italy is very much the same fashion, right? If they shop daily for what they're going to cook that night. And there was literally on the news, they were like coaching people how to buy groceries for longer than one day <laughs> because it was just so atypical mm-hmm. to their culture, but they didn't want people going shopping, right? They're trying to restrict the crowds. They're trying to restrict all these things because COVID was happening that they were literally educating people in the news in how to grocery shop for three to five days at a time. Cause <laughs> I mean, and if it seems so foreign to us, but the whole idea of shopping on a three to five day basis for them was so foreign, right? So it was, it was really interesting (laughs) to hear that on the news when that was all happening. Yeah. Another thing she mentions is to kind of, you know, as you do make these adjustments to, you know, if you were to kind of use her book as a diet guide um, to incorporate your family and teach the kids about these things as well. So um, that it's not just, you know, mom's on a diet, mom can't have that, those types of things that teaching them about, oh, well, I'm trying to make better choices. And this is why and I'd like you to maybe try what I'm trying and those types of things. Um, And what's good about um, both this book and the next one that I mentioned, is that there's recipes included in the book. Oh, fun. Um, if you're interested, you can try it out. I did try the leek soup and I absolutely love leeks. So it was definitely something um, that I tried. She actually recommends that kind of um, this leek soup recipe kind of be like a weekend kickstart to a diet that you can, you know, make a big batch of the soup and you eat it. That's the only thing you eat for like two or three days. And that will kind of help get the first couple pounds off and then give you the momentum to do the baby steps for everything else. Yeah, that sounds delicious. And a little plug for maybe read it as a hard copy book so you can make sure you get the recipes that go along with it. (laughs) So, well, that sounds really interesting because, again, having lived in Sicily, I would love to see, I bet there's probably a lot of crossover between the cultures. So I would love to see, um, I saw a lot of differences in the three years we lived there as well. I mean, you can't get strawberries when it's not strawberry season. You know, they eat very seasonally, um, which I think just makes the food taste a lot better in in, in reality, um, not having things year round. So that was uh, fun. And you really don't see a lot of um, heavier set people. And again, probably functioning of walking and the way they eat mm-hmm. and, and like public drunkenness, like that's not really a thing. Like you said, they have like one glass of wine. It's more meant to drink and be social than to drink to get drunk. And so there was a lot of um, differences I saw in our cultures around eating. So I would be really interested to read this because it sounds like they might be similar. Well, so while strawberries are available in the mountains right now, they're about $6 a pint. So it's... Wow. So you eat seasonally as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're forced to buy your budget. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, it for me, it was a really good learning curve of what was available during what season, you know, and like now I kind of have it memorized having done it for a few years. So now I even kind of tend to eat the same now that even though we're back in the States. So, which is a great segue to the next book in my flight. Ooh, perfect. Well, let me recap that one real quick and we'll jump in. So that was French women don't get fat 
The Secret of Eating for Pleasure, and I'm not as good at reading French as Kim, so let's go with it, by Mirel Giuliano. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what's our second pairing today? The next one is um, called Animal Vegetable Miracle, and this is by Barbara Kingsolver, and she is typically a fiction writer. She writes novels kind of by profession, Okay, Um, but she chose to spend a year and this is kind of a common thing um and if you read nonfiction or get into nonfiction, this is kind of a common thing well they'll make um almost like a social experiment or test themselves for a certain period of time or a year in this case um barbara and her family chose to actually move from arizona to virginia um i believe it was her husband that had a family farm there and they lived on that farm and only ate local for an entire year um so either they either may you know produce the food themselves whether it be um animals that they raise chickens or vegetables and things um orchard items or they had a few exceptions they had a certain mile radius that if they weren't able to grow it or produce it themselves they could buy it locally within a certain radius or um, then they also had a few exceptions like coffee and sugar and those types of sure. things that they would allow themselves to consume from uh, other countries or outside the area. So they had a year long experiment um, kind of going through this process and she wrote about it. And in the book, it's documented seasonally. So she goes through the seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, oh, cool. and talks about the, f- the vegetables and the food products that are grown in that season, what they were dealing with um, certain times of the year, it's easier to grow things. Or of course, in the winter, it's going to be more challenging. You're going to have more uh, root vegetables, a lot of squash, but then also dealing with animals. Um, you know, in the spring, it's birthing season and the winter, you know, you have to keep them warm and those types of things. So you hear about all those different stories and kind of how the family dealt with the process not only with having to adjust the food that they eat but then also that you know this kind of became their mission for the year of you know trying to figure out how to um, make up new recipes and try new foods that they've never had before and those types of things um and i believe she has two daughters i was gonna ask do they have children (laughs) yeah they and i want to say they're a little bit older because um i believe they even there was a few excerpts that the daughters wrote or recipes from the daughters that are included in the book as well. So you get a little bit from their perspective in little bits and pieces. So kind of same thing. There's some great recipes in the book um, that you can try as well. But the biggest thing um, that really kind of opened my eyes to, um, you know, while they're doing this as Um, their own learning process. What's great about nonfiction books, um, or at least, you know, this kind of writing of nonfiction, not all are the same, but I love the ability of when they throw in a ton of facts and data for you in addition to their experiences. So you're hearing it from, so this, in this book, it's a combination of kind of a memoir and then some data about what they're doing. And in the introduction, she points out that um, kind of America's oil addiction and that we are looking at it more from oh well we need to have more electric cars and then the whole debate right now about gas stoves and all those types of things however um so uh, i wrote some of it down so um 400 gallons of oil per person per year is used in farm equipment pesticides 
fertilizers, herbicides, wow. all the oils that are used in the regular production of food. And the biggest part of it too then is the transport That's, of yeah. that food from the farm all the way to your plate. Yeah, And that if Americans chose to eat one meal per week, completely locally wow. sourced, the difference could be 1,500, oh, that's the miles. Sorry, I'm pulling from the wrong, wrong note section. Okay. So the average meal travels 1,500 miles wow, from the farm to crazy. your plate. That's and then, crazy. Um, back to this point, if you had one meal per week sourced locally, we could reduce oil by 1.1 million barrels per week. Wow. Not gallons, barrels. Barrels per, be per week. Yeah, by just yeah. having, for, for every American to have one locally sourced meal per week. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's really, really big. So when we're talking about like, Impressive. again, kind of those oil, environmental issues, that how much food is related to that. And you've probably yeah. seen it this year with inflation and egg prices and those types of things and things that are starting to disappear from the shelves, the shrinkflation uh, where the products are getting smaller in size yeah. and going up in price and those types of things. Um, it all links back to this, that if you just got your stuff, you know, chose to shop at the farmer's market, which is probably, yes, a little more expensive, but compared to the inflated prices we're getting at the grocery store, probably at the at this point comparable yeah. um but how much that will help the environment not only for your local economy and your local environment but large scale in regards to how food normally travels yeah so this and book I think, really opened me up to that yeah like you were saying i think there's also a part too like when i go to the farmer's market and yes i don't buy everything there because it it does feel more expensive but even just getting to talk to the farmers and seeing mm -hmm the smile that you bring to them by shopping their products, asking them about their expertise. I think that that's really fun too. And, um, you know, it feels good to support yeah. the local farmer. Um, we've had the difficulty of like, I finally find like my like go-to right for like the eggs and the milk and the, like a CSA box that I like. And, and then sure enough, we up and move again. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm recreating this right now uh, locally here, but I do try. Um, but I'm like, Oh gosh, just recreating it all the time. Like, it's like, I found all, find all my sources. I've got a good rhythm and then I've got to, got to start back over. The other thing I was thinking about as you were talking, and I don't know if she talks about this either, but I feel like being in my physical therapist mind is our bodies are pretty cyclical too. And how they work, whether that's in like our daily circadian rhythms, but even in the seasonality. And I think, that food plays a huge part of that is the foods that are available in the winter are denser. It's things that we need. Like we might not be eating as much during the winter, right? We kind of go into like a slight hibernation type mode. We don't hibernate obviously, but like our body does that, right? And it's like this time of year where we are quiet. And so I think our we have these like natural rhythms of life and food plays a huge part of that. And I think if you're eating locally and you're eating seasonally, like that's really when you're going to feel you're more in that natural rhythm versus gathering things from, you know, all over the world to eat strawberries 365 days a year. 
<laughs> so um, I don't know if she talked about that, but it was just kind of I was thinking about that as you were chatting. I don't recall. Um, so all of these are a little bit older books. Um, I don't recall specifically if if she goes in re- the in depth in regards to the nutrition, but it's definitely something to look into. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's interesting that you know the food probably I would guess does have what you need that type of year because yeah. that's what's growing. Yeah. Yeah. Something in, I don't know, total little side note <laughs> we're adding in. Um, anything else you want to add about that one? Um, I don't think so. I think that covers all my notes on this one. Okay. Oh, um, the book, again, in kind of in chapters, how she talks about the seasons, it, that's literally how the book's divided as well. So it's part one, spring, part two, yeah. summer kind of thing. Um, so it's definitely kind of carries you through the season. I think that's all I've got on this one. Okay. Well, that gives me a good little uh, idea for you because I've been trying to think about what to add in for your dessert pairing. And so that gives me a good idea based off that book. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Let's talk about the last one and then we'll see if I can't zero in on something for you. Um, So that was Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. And then what's our last book in the book flight today? Yeah, this last one is called The Botany of Desire from Michael Pollan. And he this is kind of his first book in a lot of other food books that he's written. I think almost everything that he's done has turned into some type of TV special um, documentary miniseries, those types of things. There's a number of his newer books that are um, turned into specials on Netflix. Um, But this one was the very first one that he wrote. Um, I'm pretty sure there's also a show for it, but you might have to find it like in TV archives. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Since it's older. And in this one, he talks about the relationship between humans and domesticated plants. So we think more about our domesticated animals and how those have changed over the years and those types of things. And you don't really think about how much our plants have been domesticated and kind of switching moreover from this having this extreme biodiversity and everything being so different to everything now being cultivated and um, having much more of a monoculture type agricultural environment, which is really what big pharma and, you know, big ag is. Yeah. Um, Okay. And um, so his book um, is divided into um, four chapter or four kind of parts as well. Um, it covers uh, four different plants and kind of all as part different desires. So your desire for sweetness, he covers apples, beauty, tulips, intoxication, marijuana, and control potatoes. Um, so he talks about kind of the original origins of where these um plants originated and kind of how that's transitioned over the years. So the bigger story that I always kind of take to heart to this that I remember, and I I think I I tell it more often, mainly because it it comes up and people don't realize it, is the first section about apples. And that um, apples originated in Kazakhstan, I believe, as as well as tulips. So two of the plants on the list, 
started in Kazakhstan. I had no then, idea. <laughs> um, marijuana is from um, East Asia, you know, kind of specifically the Himalayas. Um, and then potatoes are originated from the Andes Mountains in South America. Um, so kind of how they, where they started to where they are today. And like people say, like, there's nothing more American than apple pie, but apples are not native to America. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Wow. I had literally no idea. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated right now. <laughs> um, and the, he, Michael writes his books, um, and again, which is probably why they, they turn into these documentary miniseries so easily because it is a lot more about storytelling. And um, you get a lot of factual information in the way that he tells these stories and experiences. So he talks about um, the history of Johnny Appleseed. And we all probably generally know a story about Johnny Appleseed. There's Johnny Appleseed festivals when we grew up in the mm -hmm. Midwest. And there's a Johnny Appleseed play going on right now by us. Um, so Johnny Appleseed is, you know, kind of generally known a part of our American history culture, but I don't think people realize besides like wearing the pot on his head and going around with a bunch of apples, don't really know much more about Johnny Appleseed and kind of what his objective was. Yeah. And um, there's an amazing excerpt. So even if you don't read the entire book, I recommend that anyone look up that excerpt specifically about Johnny Appleseed, because the way yeah. he describes it is fascinating of just kind of rolling down the river and kind of this um, outboard, you know, floating raft kind of thing with barrels and barrels and barrels of apple seeds. And another thing people don't realize is that apple seeds are like snowflakes. Every single apple seed is different and produces a completely different type of apple. So when you go to the store and you, if you're a fan of galas or fujis or yeah. honeycrisp that it was a big thing in the midwest um that those are all clones interesting they're, they're produced by cloning some type of mother plant um so you can never just plant a fuji apple tree from seed on your property you'd have to buy a seedling that was a clone of another plant okay but then would the plants produce all the same like apples on that plant no. Well, yes. Okay. All the, all the all seeds the apples, would be the same from that plant. Not the, the fruit, but not the seeds. So huh. all all the fruit. So if you have a Fuji cutting and seedling to plant, all the apples on the tree would be Fuji. But if you take a seed from the apple that you get at the grocery store and plant it, you're not going to get the same variety of apple grown from that tree. Wow. Really fascinating. Yeah. I'm envisioning, so, I feel like in high school, we took ag science together and I'm like, what was Mr. Nelson was his name? I think yes. he'd be so proud of you right now. <laughs> in more than, more, more than one ways. It was always talking about yahoos and yeah. born on concrete. <laughs> yeah. He was such a fun teacher. Anyways, little digression there, but you, <laughs> I'm fascinated right now. Um, but with the apple trees, um, the kind of the reason or the objective of why Johnny Appleseed went around and did all of this was really to kind of as a precursor to um, human development in the rest of the United States of just planting okay. these apple trees everywhere. And the reason they wanted apple trees is kind of, you know, probably heard about it with other cultures is that hard cider was actually healthier to drink than direct water sources because they had to boil and distill it yes. 
So you're purifying what you're drinking rather than having a you know direct water source that may have some type of contaminants because yeah. they didn't know about. You shouldn't be having your latrine upstream from your water source. Those types of things yeah. uh, were science that they didn't know at the time, but they knew that cider was healthy. So he planted apple trees everywhere across the United States that he traveled to. And the apples were then there as the areas were then developed. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, like you said, I feel like we're so ingrained to like the Johnny Appleseed legend that, yeah, I would have never in a million years guessed that they didn't originate here in America. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and in just as cool stories about tulips and marijuana and potatoes, um, about different people involved and kind of how they transformed over years and years and years and that there really are again so much more diversity of these plants than what we see at the grocery store because of that monoculture agricultural environment we have now yeah and i love what you're saying too it sounds like it's not like the dry nonfiction, right which is like what i said in the beginning of the episode where i'm like oh yeah i feel like i get tired while i'm reading it but that this sounds like there's a story to it and that sounds really really good like I could do that and not be so sleepy in one to two pages. <laughs> I'm sure there I'm sure there are some nonfiction out there, especially textbooks, which is kind of what we associate to the yeah. idea of nonfiction or some of the things that were assigned um, growing up in high school, those things, types of nonfiction items that are a bit more dry. Um, so there's there's a lot more um options out in the world for nonfiction memoirs are a great one because you're kind of getting that same storytelling idea from some an individual's perspective um and i love all of these because again they kind of mix um their own experiences in with some really cool facts yeah oh that's really cool well do you have anything else you want to add for that one that's all for that one okay i don't want to spoil about all the other plants so, <laughs> so that's the botany of desire a plant's eye view of the world by Mal Michael Polan. Polan? I think. I think okay. So. <laughs> All right. I was like, I've definitely heard the name, but I don't think I've heard it pronounced. So hopefully I did that justice. Well, I want to give you a little bit of a dessert pairing as a thank you for coming on to our show. But I have a couple questions for you about what book you might be intrigued by. So there's one, two of these in particular are memoirs, but the first one is about Midwest and like food in the Midwest. Or the other memoir I'm thinking of is about where a family goes, uh, it, they buy basically a broken down orchard and like restore this orchard to life. And it's like they were not only restore the orchard, but they restore their family too. So there's a little bit of that. Or the third book I'm thinking of is actually called um, The Food Explorer. I don't know if you've read it, but it sounds kind of similar to this last book that you were talking about. Um about basically how our culture changed from just eating for sustenance to eating for from desires and this guy that went around the world and brought all these different things to America. Yeah, let's, let's hear about that one. Okay. All right. So <laughs> I was like, let me give you a couple of ideas. So that is the Food Explorer. It's the true adventures of the globe-trotting botanist who transformed what America eats. And that is by Daniel Stone. So this is actually a true story based off a food explorer named 
Daniel Fairchild, and he started traveling the world, and he brought things and diversified our crops to bring things like avocados, mangoes, seedless grapes. Um, He brought all these things to America throughout this. But like I said, kind of in the introduction is America used to eat just to sustain ourselves, right? There really wasn't enjoyment in our eating. It was just to be able to live our days. Um, And this young botanist had a, he really wanted to explore the world and he was, he was really wanting to experience cultures and their food. And so he left America. This was in the 19th century, but he left America and he went on these adventures and he goes to Croatia. He goes to India. He goes all over the place. So you'll learn a little bit about these places that he has gone as well, um, including even like bringing cotton back from Egypt. And it was a different uh thing that we had here. So it really revolutionized the cotton industry we had here in America. Um, But he also has some funny mishaps along his travels as well. He actually is arrested at one point and he's kind of um, has to bargain with these island tribes that he's going. And so it's really, really interesting. I think you'll like it. It's, it is nonfiction and because it's about this, he's like an explorer botanist and I thought it was really cool. (laughs) Sounds very interesting. Yeah, and I think it sounds like you obviously like these more food-based memoirs, or I know you like other things, but having like this, I think it would fit perfectly in our book flight today. So that would be my recommendation for you. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So really quick, let's do our speed round of the bonus pairings really quick. You can answer these really fast, um, but let's start. So where is your favorite place to read? Um. Well, where I actually read and where I'd prefer to read are different. Okay. <laughs> um, again, I, I, I'm probably stuck with audiobooks while I'm doing dishes, while I'm folding laundry. So it's really just kind of hiding away in my room any spare minute that I can. Sure. Um, but where I'd prefer to read, I love to get out into the woods and go hike in the mountains and just sit on a rock or on the ground or wherever and kind of get myself grounded and read some short, typical kind of more thought inducing um, type things, poetry or um, kind of short stories, again, about nature when I'm sitting in nature, those kind of things. That sounds magical. What is uh, one book that you have read that has changed your life? Um, Other than the three I already mentioned, because those were (laughs) big in regards to kind of my career, this whole passion for local food. Um, I think the other one that I always kind of mention to people in regards to kind of what's um, influenced my life, my perspective, those types of things, it's called The Book of Joy. And it's um, kind of a memoir. Um, I couldn't really tell you if they're actually the authors, but it's about the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Reverend Tutu and their friendship. (laughs) And it's, I want to say it's actually written by like one of their associates or handlers, you know, someone that helps kind of keep them um, on their regular day-to-day schedule kind of thing. And um, it's absolutely phenomenal and really kind of puts that perspective of like, regardless of what BS you're dealing with at home or at work or whatnot, there's so many things to be thankful for. And um, I mean, that's the Dalai Lama's you know ultimate mission. He's got a number of other books about happiness, but this one um, really kind of resonated with me in regards to their friendship and um, 
that from countries apart, they were experiencing different challenges and still found a way to um, be good friends, especially amongst their differences. You know, you wouldn't yeah. think someone that's Hindi is going to be a good, good friends with an archbishop of, of the diocese, you know, so it's, um, it, it really kind of breaks down that those differences really aren't that big of differences. Yeah, I liked it for that reason, too, that they come from totally different backgrounds, but they would still get into this, you know, like still approach the situation from a same way, but from a different path. Yeah. So, all right. Are you a rereader? Uh, I don't have the time to. <laughs> <laughs> same. That's my answer. Whether I'd want to or not, I, I don't have the time to. <laughs> yeah. Well, lastly, what are you reading next? Um, I actually just finished um, a few books. I, I'm definitely one that sticks, again, kind of through the audiobooks to Libby and Overdrive before that was disbanded from the libraries, getting all those free resources. Sure. Um, my daughter uses Learning Ally and Epic from school. Um, so we, again, just finished the first Magnus Chase book. Okay. We, I just finished Big Magic. Um, it's the same author as Eat, Pray, Love. Elizabeth oh, okay, yeah. something. Um, again, I'm sure you'll include it in the show notes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but she she wrote about kind of the creative ideas. And then I also just finished um, Lost Apothecary, um, a historical nonfiction book as well. Oh, um, that one's been on my list. That one I got from the Little Free Library um, that's on Love our street. Um, so again, always looking at for free resources. Um, and yeah, I just finished those three. On my two reads list is probably still a series from Ryan Holiday. Um, he's definitely works more with um, ancient Stoic philosophies, um, those types of things very short chapters which are convenient because i can just sit down and read one chapter and yeah. it's only two or three pages um but there's a number of his books that are still on my list that i've actually have that i need to get through oh well that sounds really interesting i've, I've seen the name but i don't think i've read any of his books so oh one more book on my list um i see it on my notes um the hoarder um, this is a nonfiction on okay. my list, and it's about um, the Mongols and how the Mongolians and um, their culture changed the world. Um, so I, I thought that would be a really interesting one to, to read about that as well. Yeah, I've never heard of that, but that does sound like a really interesting topic. But I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I know your time is so precious. And we, well, we, I'm saying we because I'm like super excited to pick these up. I actually have the Barbara King Solver book on my bookshelf as we speak. And I got it from a little free library as well last year. Um, so Someone must have planted them there. They just bought the whole stack. <laughs> yep. So this is now, this is like my little nudge to pick that up for my next nonfiction read. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Kim Colner and I in our discussion today on her books you can sink your teeth into book flight. We'd love to hear what other books you would pair with this book flight at bookishflights.com. That is also where you can find more information on today's flight and any other books that we talked about today. I want to inspire a community of readers. So whenever you share a post about what you are reading or what you are picking up next, Especially if you have heard about the book on the show, please tag us. 
follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Bookish Flights. This is a brand new show, so if you enjoyed it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a review. Your review not only helps me, but it also helps the show reach others. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to make sure that you will not miss an episode. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As Emma Thompson said, I think books are like people in the sense that they'll turn up in your life when you most need them. Cheers to you, dear readers. Until next time. Thank you.